Amen. Well, thank you, Doug. Good morning, City Light. Yeah, it is a good morning to dig into God's Word together, and that's what we're going to do. We are studying the book of Mark this summer together, and this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 2. Now, Mark is a biography of Jesus, one of four in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are each biographies of Jesus in the Bible, accounts of Jesus' life. So it would make sense then that Mark chapter 1 was the grand entrance of Jesus into the world. Now, I'm not talking about Jesus' birth. That was amazing, but that's not recorded in the book of Mark at all. Now, in Mark, Jesus' grand entrance to the world happened at his baptism. It happened when God literally spoke from heaven and said this, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And when the voice of God rang out from the heavens speaking to and about Jesus, it was like an announcement, like a declaration, like a blessing over Jesus, the Son of God, that commissioned him. It's like Jesus came as the Son of God with a mission and a message. And when God looked out over Jesus at his baptism and said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. It sent Jesus out on that mission with that message. And we see it just a couple verses later. Jesus says... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand when Jesus enters the world. What did that look like? Well, when the kingdom of God was at hand, it looked like something people had never seen before. It looked like Jesus, just an itinerant preacher calling some fishermen out of their boats to live a life for something bigger than themselves. And so they left behind their nets and their boats and their livelihoods to follow Jesus. They gave up everything to get him. It looked like something they'd never seen before. When the kingdom of God was at hand, it looked like Jesus speaking with the kind of authority that silenced demons and sent them away. When the kingdom of God was at hand, it looked like Jesus touching sick people, healing them and driving death and decay out of their bodies. When the kingdom of God was at hand, it looked like something no one had ever seen before. And after each instance, the people who saw Jesus doing what Jesus came to do, they left amazed and telling everyone about what they had just seen. Word about Jesus was spreading. Now, I don't think going viral was a thing back then, but if it was, that was happening to Jesus, all right? When people saw him, they just shared about him. They couldn't stop. And so the end of chapter 1, Jesus' grand entrance into the world, it ends like this, with the account of Jesus healing a man with leprosy. It reads, But he, the man who'd been healed from leprosy by Jesus, went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. 
So right away, what we see in Mark is that as word about Jesus spread, people came from everywhere to find out if what they had heard about Jesus was true. They wanted to know for themselves if what this viral rumor about Jesus that they had heard, is that really true? And throughout the book of Mark, we're going to see this happening. People uh, in all kinds of ways encounter Jesus and ask, who is this guy? In fact, the, the whole story of Jesus' life in the book of Mark is carried along by questions like that. Who is this guy, Jesus? I think uh, we often ask the same sort of questions when we encounter somebody that we just don't know what to make of them. Have you ever asked, who is this guy? Like, I remember when I uh, was in my very first uh, day of college, my very first class I ever took, uh, I was a little nervous, you know, didn't know what to expect, and I walked into the room with all of the other students who were filing in, and we all found our seats, and uh, there was no professor in the room. Odd, right? And so uh, we all sit there, we're kind of meeting each other, talking, five minutes go by, still no professor. And so at that time, one guy stands up, he was a few rows to my left, said, all right, here's the deal. Uh, he doesn't show up, we don't have to be here. We'll give him five more minutes, and then let's all leave. We can't all get in trouble if we all leave, right? That sounded like a good plan to the rest of us. So we just kept waiting. Five more minutes pass, and we're like, all right, we're out. And uh, so we pick up our bags, and as we're getting ready to leave, one guy from the back of the room walks to the front of the room, steps behind the podium and says, hey, you all can uh, sit back down. We looked at that guy and looked at each other. Uh, who is this guy? Right? We just made a plan. Why are you interrupting it? We're going to leave. <laughs> the professor doesn't show up. We don't have to show up. Who is this guy? And he took off his hat and said, I'm the professor. I just wanted to see how you all behaved when no authority was in place. <laughs> I mean, the dude who stood up and organized our mass exodus uh, wondered how his first impression was going to impact his final grade. And the rest of us were thinking, what do you observe about me? I don't know. It's a weird way to start college. All right. Nonetheless, we saw this guy and thought, who is he? Why would he look like a student and then reveal himself as a professor? It was weird. I think we've all encountered some time like that when you don't know what to make of somebody and you think, who is this guy? In Mark chapter 2, the people hear these incredible acts of Jesus. They watch him bring the kingdom of God at hand and they wonder to themselves, who is this guy? And they ask the question, I think, in two ways. They say, why does Jesus talk like why does Jesus eat like that? Who is this guy? He's not like us. We don't know what to make of him. And in each case, when Jesus answers their question, we learn something about him. We learn something about the kingdom of God at hand. And so that's going to be our outline this morning. We're going to look at the questions that these people asked and the answers that Jesus gives to find out who is Jesus and what does it look like for his kingdom to come. So let's start with question number one. Why does he talk like that? Who is this guy? Chapter 2 begins 
with a crowd gathered at Jesus' home. Remember, people are coming from all over so that Jesus can't even openly enter a town. There are so many people there. How's he going to get into his house? There's just crowds of people from all over crowded into Jesus' house. It's like shoulder-to-shoulder, packed place. And that was a problem for one group of guys who had come to see Jesus. They'd heard what Jesus uh, did, and so they brought a friend of theirs who was paralyzed. They brought him on a bed or a stretcher, a cot. They carried that up to Jesus' house, and they could not get in the front door because there were so many people in the house. And so they resorted to extreme measures to see Jesus. They scale the side of the house, climb onto the roof, cut a hole in the roof, and then lowered their friend down through the roof to see Jesus. Right? That gets kind of intense. The Bible tells us how Jesus responded. This is chapter 2, verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And at that point, they think, who is this guy? The Bible continues. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I'll shoot straight with you. What Jesus said to the guy on that bed was not normal. Nobody just announced the forgiveness of sins like Jesus did. He claimed by that statement to have the authority within himself to forgive sins. The people thought, who is this guy? Why does he talk like that? God alone. Who but God alone can forgive sins? And that last question is a rhetorical question. It was a question with an obvious answer. Not a trick question. Who but God alone can forgive sins? The answer is nobody. Nobody could do that except God. And the people believed that only God could forgive sins because that's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says about sin. Let me show it to you. The book of Isaiah tells us that sin separates us from God. This is uh, Isaiah 59. But uh, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So the Bible tells us that we are not separated from God because his hand is too short to reach down to us. His arm is not too short to save The Bible tells us that we are not separated from God because he's just too far away from us to hear our prayers. That's not true. The Bible says we are separated from God because we've rejected him. That's what it means to sin. We've turned away from God. And because of that, that means I cannot ultimately forgive your sins. Because your sins are against God. You cannot ultimately forgive my sins. Because my sins are against God. You tracking with me? That means it makes sense that God alone can forgive sins. Because all of our sin is against God alone. 
That's the line of thinking. That's the nature of sin. Only God can forgive sin. Not even the prophets or the priests that God sent could forgive sin. The other people that God sent couldn't forgive sin. Prophets couldn't do it. Prophets could declare God's forgiveness, but they couldn't forgive sin themselves. Uh, look at this exchange between the prophet Nathan and King David in 2 Samuel. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. This is a man confessing to the prophet that God had sent to his people. I've sinned against the Lord. What does the prophet say? And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Was that Nathan's decision? No, that was what the Lord did. So a prophet can declare God's forgiveness, but he can't actually forgive. Okay, uh, priests, they're a little different ball game, a different animal. A priest could offer a sacrifice for sin to the Lord, but they could not themselves forgive sin. Look at this uh, from the book of Leviticus. It's like the handbook for sacrifices for priests in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 4 says, As the priest did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. And so the priest makes a sin offering to the Lord as atonement for the sins of the people, and then God promised to forgive. So the priest could offer a sacrifice but couldn't forgive himself. And so, back to Jesus, the man on the bed lowered down in front of him. It would have been normal for a regular prophet or a regular priest to say, God forgives your sin, to assure him of God's forgiveness. But that's not what Jesus does. He says, son, the one that I am talking to, my child, son, your sins are forgiven. And when he said that, he did something that no one else had ever done. He claimed in himself to have authority to forgive sins. And so with that in mind, we can understand why the people who heard Jesus say that sentence to that paralyzed man thought to themselves, who is this guy? Only God can say something like that. We learn about Jesus in his response. This is what the Bible says Jesus uh, followed up with. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, the questioners, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. In response to the questions, Jesus asked questions of his own. He says, which is easier, to say to this guy, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, pick up your bed, and walk? This is not a trick question. Which one is easier to say? Well, it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. Because 
if you're faking it, there is no evidence to say whether you actually accomplished the thing that you said or whether you didn't accomplish the thing that you said. So it's really easy to say your sins are forgiven, but it's really hard to do that because God alone can do it. And so Jesus says, okay, that you may know that I have the power to do what I said, I'll say the thing that's easier to do but harder to say because if I'm faking it, you will all know, right? So he tells the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. And immediately, the guy who's not ever walked, he's paralyzed, he gets up, picks up his bed, and walks out the crowded front door to go home. It's incredible. And so the line of thinking here goes like this. Because Jesus proved he has the power to do what he says by healing the paralyzed man. He healed the guy so that everyone would know, I don't fake it when I speak. Because he proved he has the power to do what he says when he healed the paralyzed man. And Jesus said the man's, are forgi- the man's sins are forgiven. A thing that only God could say and do. Therefore, Jesus is God. Are you tracking? It's like, a, it's like a proof of who Jesus is. Because he could do what he said, and he said his sins are forgiven, he must be God who can forgive sins. So the people around Jesus heard his words and thought, who is this guy? Why does he talk like that? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus' response was, you're right. Only God can forgive sins. I am God. That's Jesus' response. What we learn straight away in Mark chapter 2 is that Jesus is God. Now, I'll shoot straight with you. It's hard to blame all of those people for their confusion about who Jesus was and why he would speak like that. It's sort of like my college professor that looked like a student. Right In those first minutes of the class, he didn't show any telltale signs of being a professor. He was young, not old. He wore a ball cap, not a tweed suit jacket. Right, And he sat at a desk in the back of the room instead of behind a podium in the front of the room. Nobody could be blamed for thinking he was a student, not the professor. And when Jesus came to earth, he came and looked a lot like a man. If you would have just looked at Jesus, he would have given no telltale signs that he was God, not man. And and so I just wonder, it begs the question, why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus come looking like you and me? When he could have come and made it clear that he was God. Like, why didn't he come and look like Zordon, right? Like Power Ranger fans from the 90s, anybody? Like the floating head in the clouds and you're like, that guy is not like us. He must be some sort of God. Or why didn't he come like just a blazing, blinding beam of light? Where you would have said, that is something so totally different than me. It's a power that I don't possess. That must be God. Why would God come looking like you and me instead of something that would have clearly set him apart as God? That's a legit question. Is he just trying to trick us? What's going on? I think the short answer is Jesus came as a man 
to pursue the sinners that he came to forgive. Jesus came as a man to walk among the people that he came to forgive. He's not a floating head that exists just to give us good advice. That'd be far off and impersonal. He's not a beam of light that we can't touch or relate to. There'd be no real way for us to connect or to know that type of a thing. They'd be so unlike us. Instead, Jesus is God, and he came as a man because he wants a relationship with you and with me. He became like us so that we could know him and he could know us and he could pursue sinners and forgive them. And that's what we see in the next verses. So number one, they ask, who is this guy? Why does he talk like that? Number two, they ask, who is this guy? Why does he eat like that? That's a weird question. And they ask it from two angles. All right. First, Jesus calls Levi, um, the tax collector, to follow him. This is the passage that Doug read earlier. Uh, Tax collectors in Jesus' days were lying, cheating shysters, all right? You would not think that they would be following a rabbi or the son of the living God. But Jesus walks by Levi, invites him to follow him, and you know what Levi did? He changed his whole life, and he left that tax booth and his old ways of lying and cheating, shysterism behind him, and followed Jesus. And immediately, Levi says, hey, Jesus, why don't you come to dinner with me and my friends? And you know what kind of friends Levi had? Lying, cheating shysters, (laughs) because they ran in the same circles that he used to run in. And so Jesus, when he got that dinner invitation, he didn't deny it. He accepted it, and he went and ate with sinners kind of man Jesus is. And then the Pharisees, who are a group of super religious people committed to personal purity, uh, they watched. They believed, actually, that hanging around and eating with tax collectors and sinners would compromise their own personal purity. If you hang out too much with shysters, you yourself will become a shyster. I've said that word so many times. They believed that that could happen, and so they refused to eat with people like that or get near them. And so the Pharisees saw Jesus in the middle of that shady crowd eating with them and asked, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Who is this guy? Why would he do that? Then they take it a step further. Not only do they think Jesus is eating with the wrong kinds of people, they think he shouldn't be eating at all. Later they ask, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? That's like not eating for a while. But your disciples do not fast. That sort of reminds me um, of when I try to do Whole30. You guys know Whole30? It's like where you uh, don't eat any processed food for 30 days. I try to do that once a year. And uh, every time I do it, I find myself getting a little judgy. Anybody else do this? Like, I don't eat any, like, sugar processed food for a month, and it's awful and miserable. And then I think everybody else should be doing it with me. So 11 months out of the year, I eat donuts every morning. But when I'm doing Whole30, I think, oh, it's 
you guys are eating donuts, I'll pray for you, <laughs> right? Uh, you know how much sugar's in that latte? It just makes me sad, you know? Like, I, I make a commitment myself, and then I get disappointed in everyone else who can't make the same kind of commitment with me. You probably are all holier than me, all right? Pray for me, but that's what I do. I get judgy when people don't do the same thing that I'm doing. And that's what these guys are saying. They're saying, man, we are so committed to our spiritual health that we are willing to fast. Jesus, why aren't you and your disciples making the same commitment that we have made? And so the question here is in two parts. Who is this guy? Why does he eat like that? Why does he eat with those dirty people? And why doesn't he not eat with us good people? Right? That's the questions. And like uh, the first one, Jesus' response shows us something about who he is. Jesus answers the first part of the question like this. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Friends, if you are a sinner and you know it, this is one of the most cherished lines in all of Scripture. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners it means Jesus didn't come to isolate himself from people like you and me. He came for us, to be with us and near us. The Pharisees avoided contact with sinners because they feared that other people's sin would rub off on them and make them worse people. But Jesus uh, modeled a totally different outlook. One where his own personal purity was not threatened by the sin of others. He walked among them, lived near them, came for them. He spent time with sinners. And in the same way that Jesus touched the leper and did not get leprosy, but instead the leper got healed, Jesus the sinless God-man came to earth to walk among sinners, getting close to them, eating with them, touching them, and he did not take on our sin. Instead, he healed us from our own sin. You see how Jesus works? He came not to hide from you, but to heal you. That's good news, amen? Why did Jesus eat with sinners? That's who he came for. People like you and me. The second part of the question was why Jesus and his disciples don't fast like John the Baptizer's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples. Why doesn't he do what we do? Why isn't he like us? And again, Jesus' response essentially confirms what they have already identified about him. Why doesn't he do the things that we do? Why isn't he like us? Jesus says, because I'm not like you. <laughs> That's the answer, right? And so uh, this, is what, this is how Jesus said it. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. The point here that Jesus is making is that some things are so different that they just don't mix, 
Like if I got a hole in my shirt and I tried to patch it with a piece of new unshrunk cloth, that would not work. Why? Because in the dryer cycle, the new cloth would shrink, but the old shirt material would not, and that would actually make the tear in the shirt worse. Some things just don't mix. Uh, the next one, new wine and old wineskins. We actually put wine in bottles these days, and you can refill them. And so this one <laughs> doesn't relate as well to our world today. But in Jesus' days, they didn't put wine into refillable bottles. They put wine into skins. And somehow the wine and the skin would age together. And so if you poured all of the old wine out of an old wine skin and put new wine into that, then the old wineskin would burst and ruin both the wine and the skin because the wine would spill and the skin would break. And so new wine and old wineskins don't go together. They're different. And sometimes things are so different that they just don't mix. So when the Pharisees asked, the, the Pharisees' disciples and John's disciples asked, Jesus, why don't you fast like we do? Why aren't you like us? His answer is, I'm not like you. Jesus is different. How so? Well, Jesus is different than the Pharisees. For example, the Pharisees studied the law to learn about good and evil spirits. They wanted to know about them. But when Jesus came in Mark chapter 1, we see that he actually spoke with the authority of God to drive out unclean spirits, evil spirits. He silenced them and sent them away. Jesus spoke with an authority that the Pharisees didn't have. He was different. Jesus was different than John, too. John preached baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and people came to him from all over to confess their sins and get baptized with water. But John himself said that someone would come after him who was mightier than him, and would baptize not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus is that one who came after John. So Jesus is different than John. He's mightier. That's Jesus. So here's the way I thought about this for today. Let me try to connect it to real life. Uh, when I was in high school, I played football. Believe it or not, I did that. And uh, I was really terrible and unskilled. And one day, we were playing a, a really bad team, and our coach saw an opportunity to get an unskilled guy like myself the ball. And so we were at, like, first and, and goal from the three-yard line. And three plays in a row, the coach ran a, a play to me. And so I got into the end zone wide open, first down, pass was right here, and I dropped it. Second down, same thing. I ran a little route, wide open in the end zone, pass hit my hands, I dropped it. Third down, I run a little out route, wide open, in the end zone, pass hit my hands, and guess what happened? I dropped it. <laughs> Three in a row, in the end zone, easy passes, I dropped one two, three. I was humiliated. And on the fourth down, the coach gave up on me, handed it to our star running back who trotted untouched into the end zone for the score. I was humiliated. And so after that, we line up for the ensuing kickoff and I thought, I'm going to redeem myself. So I abandoned my assignment on the field and instead I thought, I'm going to tackle the returner. I'm going to get this. I'm going to redeem myself. And so the kickoff happens. 
I abandoned my lane and I just shot after the returner. And one moment I was running as hard as I could. The next moment I was on my back looking at the stars struggling to breathe. (laughs) One of their guys just blindsided me, knocked me over, and knocked the wind out of me. And so to add insult to injury, after three dropped passes in the end zone, they had to clear the field and stop the game as I lay in the middle, unable to breathe. And my coach, I didn't write this down, my coach, you know how he solved uh, getting the wind knocked out of you? He would walk out and grab you by the belt and lift your hips into the air. That doesn't help, but he thought it did. So I'm laying, unable to breathe with my hips up in the air, on the field, humiliated. And if that wasn't enough, when I got to the sideline, I realized that that blindside block had split my chin open and I bled through my chin strap and my blood was dripping down onto my jersey. I promise this story has a point. (laughs) Here it is. As I sat on the bench bleeding, I got three different responses to my injury and the way that I played that night. The first one came from my coach. He looked at me and said, Eric, That's what happens when you're out of position. You should have stayed in your lane and stuck to your assignment. That's the attitude that the Pharisees had. You should not have, that's what they had towards sin, right? And sinners, you shouldn't have done that. You should have followed the laws like we told you to. Their goal was to stay so far away from sin that they didn't even need a forgiver and they would blame everyone else for doing what they thought should never be done. That response from my coach just left me feeling guilty. And that's what the Pharisees did to all those around them, just left them feeling guilty. The second response on that night to my injury and my play came from the assistant coach who was also like our pseudo-sideline medic. He uh, took my chin strap off, looked at my chin, and said, Eric, you're bleeding pretty good. Sit still. I'll put a butterfly on it to stop the bleeding until a doctor can stitch you up. I feel like that's like John the baptizer. He saw the problem of sin and called the people to repent, but he also knew that someone better was coming along, coming after him. And and just like John the Baptist to the people of Israel, his response just made them eager for what would come next. It almost made them dissatisfied with what they had, waiting for what would come. And that's actually what happened to me on the bench. I thought, it hurts getting a butterfly in there. I'd rather just get stitched, right? Like, let's go. Let's get this done. The last response Uh, came as I sat in the ER and talked to the doctor. He said something like this. Eric, this cut goes deep. Without treatment, it'll get infected. The problem will get worse. Uh, It could split more or spread, leave a big scar. But don't worry. I can clean the wound. I can close it up. I can stop the bleeding. I can stitch it together. I can make it heal. That was a totally different and far better response than anything I got from either of the guys on the field. In the same way, Jesus' reaction to sinners is totally different and far better than what the Pharisees and their legalism or John and his retreat into the wilderness could ever offer. See, Jesus doesn't see your sin and shame you for it. He doesn't send you to someone else to get it taken care of. Jesus 
himself forgives and heals sinners. He's the one we've been waiting for. There is no one like him. Jesus isn't like the Pharisees who thought their self-righteous, self-help programs would keep them so far from sin that they wouldn't need a forgiver. That doesn't work. Because no matter how hard we try to be the best version of ourselves, we can't help ourselves, we can't forgive ourselves, we can't save ourselves. We need Jesus. And Jesus is different than John the Baptist, who, please don't hear me dogging on John. Jesus said he was a great man, all right? But John said Jesus was greater. It said Jesus was different than John. He wasn't like John, who retreated into the wilderness to escape the sin of the world. That doesn't work either. The problem with escapism or retreatism is that no matter where you go, there you are, right? You might escape some of the brokenness of the world, but you can never retreat far enough to escape the sin sickness in your heart. You need Jesus. He is the God who became a man and came to earth to be near sinful men and women and children like us. It is good news that Jesus is God who became like us to be near us so that he could forgive us of our sins. Friends, as we read through Mark, we're going to see over and over again people asking, who is this guy? Who is Jesus? People came from all over and resorted to extreme measures to find out if what they had heard about him was really true. And Jesus proved himself to the people back then, and it's my prayer That as we gather here to study Mark together this summer, that God will prove himself to us too. If you've ever wondered, who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? I've heard lots of different things. That Jesus is a king. That Jesus is a friend. That Jesus is a lover. That Jesus is a judge. Who is Jesus? If you've ever wondered that, can I invite you to study Mark with us this summer? Like, study the scriptures, ask the questions, seek the Savior. Here's our plan. I'll just lay it out for you. We're going to do one chapter of Mark a week, all summer long. We started with, there's 16 chapters. We started with chapter 16 on Easter, so we're going to go through chapter 15, all right? So one chapter a week. This week is chapter 2. If you want to prep for next week, it's going to be chapter 3. Read with us. Study. Seek. Ask your questions. Let's together say, who is this guy? And find out from Jesus himself what he says. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus says he is God, the one who came as a man to know sinners and forgive them of their sin. That's good news. Amen? Would you guys pray with me? Awesome God, I thank you for this passage in Mark. That the same questions that we ask are questions that people ask in Jesus' day. And the answers that Jesus gave them can still speak to us now. And so God, this morning, would would you give us answers in our hearts from your word, by your spirit? Would you speak to us and guide us and show us who you are? Lord, this morning... For all of us who've known you for years and years and years, would you breathe new life into the scripture, that we would see you anew, that we would know you better, that we would love you more, that we would cherish you as the one who came not to hide from us, but to heal us. Oh God, would you do that for us this summer? And God, for those who've never known you, who've 
wondered, who is this guy? I've heard so much about Jesus. I don't really know what he said about himself or what the Bible says about him. I just heard from other people. Man, if that's you, friend, I'd invite you this morning. Would you join us in this study of Mark? As you do, would you just ask God your questions? He can take them. He, he answered in the days Jesus walked on the earth. He'll answer today. So read with us, ask your questions, study with us. And God, as we seek you, would you be faithful to be found? Would you show us yourself as you have done for your people um, as long as they have existed? Would you do it still today? God, we want to see you. We want to know you. We want to praise you. So would you meet us here for your glory and our good? We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.